0: Amen. Thank you so much, Alex. It's great to be with you all this morning. Again, my name is Stephen Zarelli. I've been a pastor here at Woodside for 21 years and just so thankful for what God is doing here at Lake Orion. Uh, Pray for Jim. I hear he's in Texas. Whenever that man goes out of state and gets near pools and hotels, he does stupid things. So (laughs) pray that he doesn't come back with another ruptured Achilles or a broken leg or... The last time I was with him, I remember I was down in a pool and he was up on a balcony. The pool was only, I think, three and a half feet deep. And he was on a balcony on the second floor saying, I think it's a good idea to jump off of this balcony into this pool. And I was saying, Jim, you know that's only three and a half feet of water. Like, not a good idea. He did it anyways. He lived to tell the tale. Uh, But when he's away, I don't know. I just always anticipate receiving a call of some crazy injury or something else. Even though it's his daughter who is the one who's playing soccer, I think, this weekend. So, so grateful for him and Sarah. They are dear, dear friends of my wife and I. And we just love their ministry, what they've done, uh, what they represent, how they model their faith, and walk in step with the Spirit, and all that God is doing here as well. And as Alex said, we are starting a new series. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning. I'm going to take quite a bit of time to set up, not only this morning, but also the series. And uh, so we're going to dive into, uh, I'll admittedly say right out the gate, a heavy, heavy text. And so this is a series called Confessions, and we begin with really a devastating story. But before we get there, I believe that you are all here today because you not only believe in God, but you want to know Him. And be known by him. One of the most influential theological writers of the 20th century was a man by the name of J.I. Packer. And he wrote a book called Knowing God. It's a very famous book. A lot of copies sold. If you've not read it, it's a wonderful, wonderful read. This is what he writes. He says, What matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort in being known by God. He goes on to say there is great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see. ...and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God... ...in the thought that, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend... ...and desires to be my friend... ...and has given his son Jesus to die for me in order to realize this very purpose... We cannot work these thoughts out here, but merely to mention them is enough to show how much it means to know not merely that we know God, but that He knows us. Do you recognize this morning that God has complete and absolute knowledge of you? Complete and absolute knowledge of you. Your fears, your dreams, your secrets. Nothing that you said this past week, nothing that you did, nothing that you thought was hidden from his knowledge of you. It's much more than the he gets us commercials, if you've seen those, meant to help a confused and broken culture better understand the character of Jesus. It's much more than that. It's the idea that he gets you individually, your story, your background, your highs, your lows, everything in between. If you are a child of his through faith, he knows also then that on some days you are a man or a woman after his own heart, devoted to his word, obedient to his commands, dependent upon his spirit. But on other days we are committed to our independence, to making ourselves the center, to be our own ruler, our own master, our own solution. And on those days... After we've withdrawn from God's rule and fed our desires in some fruitless effort to find happiness our own way, when we no longer feel known by God because the intimacy that we felt, it's been replaced by shame instead, what does God invite us to do in those moments of weakness? He says in 1 John 1, 9, just to paraphrase, My child, confess your sin, for I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, we experience healing. When we pull things from darkness out into the light, there's something that happens, and I think we all know this in our story. When you carry something hidden and it gets pulled out of the darkness and into the light, we feel better. Confession in its purest form for the believer, it's a spiritually therapeutic practice that frees us from the weight of carrying around the shame of our failures. Maybe you've thought, why does confessing sin matter when I know all my sin has already been forgiven by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross? He's the Lamb of God who came to take away my sin, and because I believe in him, I'm already forgiven. So what's the point in going back and just remembering my own failures and just thinking about how terrible I might be. Well, yes, your sins are forgiven in Christ, but yes, we're still commanded in Scripture to practice confession. Why? Because confession is not only about our standing in Christ. Our standing is fixed through faith. Confession is about our growth in Christ. It's about growing up. It's about maturing. It's about our development So, confession isn't meant to leave you in this place of self hatred or misery and hopelessness. Confession is meant to free you from self hatred, to restore your joy, to remind you of the hope that you have in Christ, to remind you that God is fully committed to working on you and in you until you are prepared to be in His kingdom. Because you are known by God, and this is maybe a fearful reality but just also a very hope-filled reality. Because you are known by God through faith, he is, is ruthlessly committed to doing whatever is necessary to conform your life into the image of his own son because that is what is best for you. That's what's best for me. So what does the Lord do? The Lord confronts our sin so we can experience renewal. And that's what we're talking about today, that the Lord will confront our sin, something I'm sure you are very excited to get up and think about today, so we can experience renewal. And this series is about the purpose and power of confessing our sin, erasing our shame, and experiencing the renewal that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Not just individually, by the way, not just individually, but communally as a church family. So why is confrontation and confession needed to bring about renewal? Couldn't couldn't renewal come just by our own self-awareness without somebody needing to bring up our issues or or to bring up the discussion about renewal itself? Wouldn't it be easier if we just figured it all out on our own? Well, first let me offer some cultural observations. Maybe you've noticed that confession is an endangered species in most churches today. I mean, think about it. How often do we spend time talking about confession? How often do we spend time as believers confessing sin? Is that daily practice, a weekly practice? Not a very common practice? It's endangered, not really practiced, because it presupposes that sin is a real thing. But our culture is doing everything it can to cancel the concept of sin. Uh, The culture says we don't sin, we just sometimes react to our situations and circumstances the way that we were conditioned to. You ever thought about that thinking? Have you heard that type of thinking? It's not your fault, it's because of your parents' problems, because of your incompetent teacher, because of your narcissistic boss, because of your dysfunctional coach, or the evil systems and structures at work in our culture. If our society admitted sin was the real thing... People would have to do what? They'd have to take full responsibility for their own actions and admit that something is broken in them. And that wouldn't be very good for their mental health. So broaden the story, involve everything and everyone around you that continue, uh, contributed to your failure. Pass the buck, blame shift, deflect, point out the hypocrisy in others, justify your actions reshape the story. I hear this all the time. I just actually was at a seminar for a business a few days ago, and, and this was a believer who was sharing this, this advice to say, you know what, when a story about you sounds negative, when somebody comes and confronts you on something, that, then instead of receiving that and wondering if maybe the Lord is trying to speak to you or shape something within you, just reshape the story so it serves you. Just reshape the story. Just tell yourself a different story so it serves you. This is all a life of prison, friends. Or maybe confession is a lost art, both personally and in our church family, because of its association with Catholicism. Uh, We would argue, graciously argue, that the concept of confessing sin to a priest isn't found in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't teach that there is a need for priests. First Peter chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 describes all believers in Jesus Christ as a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, it describes Christ's followers as a kingdom of priests. So the Old Testament covenant, God's promises to his people in the Old Testament, uh, that, that covenant that he made between him and his people required priests to be mediators. But now that Christ has come, there is only one mediator between God and humanity, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and Jesus serves permanently as our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. So we would teach that there are to be elders and pastors and deacons, but not priests. Now there are many reasons why we might not practice personal and communal confession, but the Lord confronts our sin And invites us into confession so we can actually experience real renewal and freedom. Now the most well-known chapter in the Bible, I would say, there's many. There's many prayers of confession. But probably the most well-known is Psalm chapter 51. And we're going to spend the next four weeks walking through it. But before we get to it, we need to understand why King David, the author, wrote this poem. Why he wrote this song. Many of the psalms have a title, a heading, and above, it's above them. It describes the inspiration behind the music. And so when you go to Psalm 51, this is what the heading reads. It says, to the choir master, to the person leading the worship for the congregation, for the people of God, it says, a psalm of David, a song of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had slept with Bathsheba and committed adultery. So there's a devastating story behind this psalm. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 12... ...where I had you turn this morning. So let's get back to answering our question. Why is confrontation needed to bring about renewal? If renewal is what we all want... ...we want to experience that transformation. We want to experience the joy of Christ... ...the peace of Christ... ...the life of Christ in our lives. If that's what we're after... Sometimes we don't really, we we want the outcome, but we don't want the process. And the process often involves God confronting things within us. So the Lord gives us three reasons why, from this text today, we need to be confronted by the Lord in order to experience renewal. The first is because we are blind sometimes to our own sin. So here's the backstory: A prophet named Samuel anointed David as the king when he was 15 years old, and he didn't become king until 15 years later when he was around 30. David was the youngest of his family. He was the least honored. He was the one who had the worst chores. He was a shepherd, and when Samuel showed up, the prophet of God, at the family's house to reveal who God had chosen as the nation's future king, David's dad, Jesse, he didn't even bother having David show up. He left him out. He assumed it would be His firstborn. And if not his firstborn, then one of his other sons. Uh, David was like Cinderella, put away, out of sight, hidden. Maybe not because he was rejected, but because his dad never imagined that the Lord would actually choose him. It was completely countercultural. All the blessing went to the firstborn. Uh, All of the extras went to the firstborn. The, The one who was the tallest, the one who was the largest, the one who was the strongest, the one who was the oldest but not in this case the lord spoke to samuel and said in first samuel chapter 16 verse 7 do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because i have rejected him for the lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the lord looks on the heart now this is the same david of whom the Lord said in the New Testament even, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. Incredible praise about the character of this person. This is the same David who wrote in one of his other poems, one of his other songs. Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight, he says, to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. He goes on to say, I meditate upon your law. I commit it to memory. This is what I want to live for. This is what I know. This is my truth. This is what I understand, and I want to do your will. Yet in 2 Samuel chapter 11, now the king... David manages to break five of the Ten Commandments, all within a few verses. In just one chapter, half of them, bam. Commits all of these within one chapter of Scripture. His men are off at war. They're carrying out the judgment and the promises of God on the surrounding nations. It's a hard thing to process. It's not for our discussion today, but that's what they're off doing. And so as they're doing this, David decided to stay home and enjoy the spoils and the comforts of his celebrity. One day, he sees a beautiful woman bathing in the privacy of her own home, and he is filled with covetousness, envy, lust, and desire. He abuses his power and position. He sends his servants to get her. She really, in this case, if you know uh, ancient Middle Eastern context and culture, she had no choice in the matter. He's using his position, he's using his power, he sends his servants to get her, and then he abuses her and commits adultery. Several weeks later, when Bathsheba tells David she's pregnant, David brings her husband Uriah back from deployment and tells him to clean up, go home, and be with his wife to cover over his sin. Uriah refuses and says, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is out in the fields. It's out in the fields with my men. So God's presence is out there. You're calling me back here. God has asked me to be out there in his presence with his people doing what he's asked us to do. So he refuses. And at that moment, Uriah is the one after God's own heart. Uriah is the one obediently following God's law. So again, David abuses his power, he abuses his position, and he sends his servants to give the order that Uriah get placed in the middle of the fiercest fighting and then abandoned by his own men so he'd be killed in battle. He is killed, Bathsheba mourns his death, and then David brings her into his harem of wives, and the child is born. I mean, what a terrible movie. Except it wasn't a movie. It was real life. This was a real man. This was his bride. The bride is abused. He is then abused and he is murdered. And it's all because of David's choices. Five commandments. You shall not covet. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not bear false witness or lie. By God's mercy, our sins might not be so unspeakably shocking. But how is it that we can all chase after God's will in one one moment and then turn around and chase after our own in the next? You ever notice that? We can have lips full of praise. Like singing these songs, full of praise. And then on our way home, those lips that were full of praise are now full of profanity. I've spoken God's message, if I'm just being honest with you this morning, I've spoken God's message of grace over people so many times in my couple decades of ministry at our church talking about God's grace talking about the good news of the gospel talking about his grace the fact that he has done things for us that we could never do for ourselves and then on my way home before I even hit the driveway that grace that I just preached about I have lacked to demonstrate to my own kids you ever been there is it just me Is is its it, what is in us that in one moment we can be chasing after the way of Jesus, and in the very next, like, we're triggered by one comment, by one thought, by something that comes into our mind, by something somebody said, by something our kid did, by something our spouse said, and all of a sudden our mind just went from gospel to whatever came out of the pits of hell. I mean, it's amazing how fast the human mind at this stage of life shifts, And that's what we see. In our pursuit of Jesus, our hearts are still fickle. They're inconsistent. They're triggered. They're sometimes wrestling with the old way and sometimes wrestling with the new. What would happen if God never confronted our sin? Have you ever thought of confrontation as a gift of God's grace? That it is actually his grace to you? Now, we come back to the story. Did David get away with it? Well, look at the last verse of chapter 11, and then we'll go into our scriptures here this morning. But the thing that David had done, chapter 11, verse 27, had displeased the Lord. So what does God do? Verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. This is like an amazing 4-H camp. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. You guys ever have, or did you have parents, like, treat the animals like the children? One of our dogs, no joke, is in my father's house in an urn. No human beings in our family have ever made it to an urn, but the golden retriever did. <laughs> so this, this lamb, this lamb had the life. So he brings it up, and it was like a daughter to him, it says. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David... Think about the story. Think about what's transpired. David had sent his servants to Bathsheba's home to do his will, to the battlefield to do his will. Now God sends his servant to do his will. So the confrontation comes through a person. And that's another point to pause. What do you do when someone confronts you? How do you receive it? How do you respond to it? Are you even open to it? Do you think, if God wants to confront me on something, he'll tell me through his word. He'll tell me through my prayers. But I don't need to hear about it from some other broken human being. What do you do when you're confronted by someone else? Jesus taught his disciples how to confront one another because he expected them To do so, he expected that they would help each other follow his ways. Paul taught the Christians in his churches how to confront one another because he expected them to help each other follow the ways of Jesus. Sometimes God confronts us in our solitude, and sometimes he confronts us through those in our community. So Nathan tells a story of a rich young ruler, a rich ruler, abusing his power and position. Nathan only uses 61 Hebrew words. That's the story. 61 words long. David loses his temper, says the rich man deserves to die, and needs to pay it back fourfold. How did David not see? That's my question. Nathan the prophet comes, tells you the story, you respond in anger, lose your temper. How did he not see that the whole thing was about him? I mean, how could he be so blind? Is he so different than than us? How is it possible for him not to recognize the irony? How does he not get that he was the one who had no pity? No pity for his men who were away from their families at war. No pity for children and wives who were left fatherless and widowed, no pity over abusing his power and position to violate Bathsheba, no pity over destroying their lives and marriage, no pity over having Uriah murdered. How is it possible the man after God's own heart? Because David is blind. We, meaning you and me, we have this unbelievable ability To see the inexcusable sin in others while not seeing the inexcusable sin in ourselves. We have a tendency to not see our own weakness and see ourselves as less susceptible to weakness than others. We can convince ourselves, I can enjoy the best this world has to offer and still love and follow God. I I can do this. I can receive this. I can go after this pleasure, and I can still love and follow God. I can, I can hold these things together. I can do them both, and everybody struggles, and nobody's perfect. And, uh, of course, there's this rhythm of sin in my life and a cycle, and I'm trying to work on it some, but I also know that I'm trying to love and follow God, and so I, I can just hold all of this. It's blindness. It's like we're not consciously aware. We, have you ever heard of the Jahari window? you guys heard of the Jahari window? Let me show it to you. I think we have it, we, I think we have it up here on the screen. Do, did we get it? Did we get it? Yeah, we did get it. So this is the Jahari window, named after a couple people that made it. It's a self-awareness matrix. And it talks about things that are known by you and known by others. The stuff that's known by you and known by others, that's what's open. That's what everybody can see. Everybody understands. It's truth that is uh, uh, available. If it's known by you but it's unknown by others, that's hidden. That is what is secret in your life. That is what you are aware of and the Lord is aware of, but not everybody else is aware of. If it's unknown by you and unknown by others, it's an unknown area. That's God's knowledge. That's beyond our conscious thinking, beyond what we can all see and understand. But if it's unknown by you and known by others, everybody else sees it, Everybody else recognizes it. People in your life see it. They experience it, but you're not seeing it. That's a blind spot. That's the blind spot. If you are not interested in having any Nathans speak into your life, any servants of the Lord speak into your life, any brothers or sisters speak into your life in Christ, and if I may... If you're not really open to allowing your spouse to speak into your life, if you're not really open to even your kids speaking into your life, or your church family speaking into your life, then you will never grow up. You'll just stay blind. Why do people do it so often? Because it's painful. Because who wants to be confronted with their junk? Because who wants to have to overcome it? So why is confrontation needed to bring about renewal? Well, first, because we're sometimes blind to our own sin. Second point and we'll go through these last two much more quickly, because we sometimes despise the word of God. Look at Second Samuel chapter 12, verse seven. So after the story, after he shares this, and David reacts and says, "Kill the man, he deserves to die," or at least he should be paying it back fourfold." And that's for a lamb. Not for a human being. This is what Nathan said. Nathan says to David, mic drop, you are the man. It's you. No further explanation needed. Game over. Sin's, uh, David's sin moved from the closet in the attic. And all of a sudden now it's a giant sign on his front door. Thus says the Lord, chapter 12, verse 7, the second part. The God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight?" The Hebrew word for despise means to view something as worthless or as despicable. So in this season, the word of the Lord was delightful. It used to be delightful and it became despicable. In this season of David's life, the will of God became worthless to him. God had given him much and he would have given him even more. But David thought it was worth it to run after his own will instead. So Nathan says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. The consequences recognize this. I mean, they're extreme and severe. We'll even see another one here in a moment. But recognize that David's actions had impact far beyond his own life. So often we can think that our sin... And the things that we do and the ways that we rebel against the way of Jesus. And when we don't follow the apprenticeship of Christ in our lives and go our own way, we think that that's ultimately just something between God and us. And it's really not going to have much impact on others. And a lot of times, God in his mercy allows it to be fairly confined. But in David's case, it was far-reaching. And this reminds us that our sin is never an isolated event because none of us really live in isolation. So, violence would ravage his family. Conflict would ensnare his family. Fornication would follow his family. And then look at verse 14. It's the most heartbreaking part of the story. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The baby also died, and the death devastated David's family. It's a similar sentence to what the Pharaoh received. Do you remember? The Pharaoh in Egypt when he was enslaving God's people and all the plagues came upon him and every time a plague would come, instead of softening his heart, he hardened his heart. And ultimately, the Lord sent an angel of death upon the whole region and there was this thing called the Passover. We're actually going to see a glimpse of it here in the text in a moment. But when all of this happened at that time in Israel's history... Pharaoh himself then lost his son. That was a consequence of, of the sins that he had committed. Now, there are no easy answers to explain all that happened here. I'm not going to try or give you some Christian quip really quickly to say, this, is, this will make it easier, in a, just an easier pill to swallow. It's not here in the text. The only thing I can say is to accept that God gathered the child up into his arms And left David without the joy of experiencing his own son's life. That's all the comfort that we can really pull from this text. We know that the child was brought into the presence of God. David actually even references it later. But David is left mourning. Does this mean that when we despise the word of the Lord that the consequences will always be this severe? That we should just be filled with extreme fear? Uh, Life experience should tell us no. It's not like God gets some kind of sick pleasure out of enacting justice. It's not like God is up there like, okay, now I'm going to get them. Now I have the chance to go get them. Now they're going to really feel it. Now they're really going to experience it. We must realize that when we hear from God or respond to him by saying with our lives, I've heard what you have said to me. I understand your word. And although I've heard it, I'm not going to do it. I'm gonna do my own thing. When we do that, we are despising his word and that independence creates catastrophes in our lives. That's what it does. When God speaks and we say, I hear you, but I'm gonna do this instead, that creates catastrophe. That's exactly what happens. That's what sin does. When we follow his way, we receive life. When we walk the other way, we receive the things of death. And that's what's happening in the story in a broken world. So God is pleading with us, follow me into life. And yet sometimes we still go running towards the way of death. So where is the Spirit exposing your heart today? Do not despise his word. Choose to experience renewal. If he is speaking, then repent of your sin and know he is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you. That's exactly what David did. Yes, God confronts us in our sin because we are blind and because we have despised him, but there is hope, there is good news, there is still gospel. Praise be to God that he also confronts our sin because he will forgive us. And if he he can forgive this man, can't he forgive you? Because the Lord will forgive our sin. That's our third point this morning. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all we have, one sentence. I have sinned against the Lord. That's his confession. And then the song in Psalm 51 that we're going to look at the next four weeks, that is actually what he prays. That's what he brings to the congregation for them to join in in this song of confession. That's what we're going to look into. Here in this part, we just have, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, after that one statement of confession, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We sin against people, regardless of what words fall in or out of favor with our culture Even though our culture doesn't like to hear it, even though it's a heavy message, a heavy text for us, there's really no way to sugarcoat this this topic today of confession and God confronting our sin. Other than to say, you know what, we need to maybe push back against the culture, look in the mirror and understand, yeah, there's parts of me that have fallen short. There's parts of me that miss the mark. There's parts of me that are in desperate need of the grace of God. Yes, in Christ I am forgiven, but yes, he wants to grow me up. Not only that, he wants you to experience the freedom of the renewing of his spirit as you confess to him and receive hope and grace and new life from him. And so even though he deserved death, the Lord responds by saying, I've put away your sin and you will not die. To put away... It's the same word, actually, that means to pass over. It's a word steeped in that biblical meaning. God reminds David of the justice and mercy he gave to his people during Passover. Just as God passed over the homes of those in Israel who had taken the lamb, sacrificed the lamb, eaten the meal, and then taken some of its blood and marked the door to say, this sacrifice is covering over Our sin, that picture of sacrifice that ultimately then was demonstrated by Jesus on the cross. The perfect lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. This is what God is talking about here. And this is not God ignoring or overlooking justice. God's justice was served when another lamb, another son, his own son, died the death that David should have died. God allowed his son to be afflicted with our affliction. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. God forgives the inexcusable in us by taking on the penalty of death for our inexcusable sin himself. And he says to us through the Lamb of God, the blood of Christ, if you would confess your sin to me and trust that I've put it away from you, I've taken it away, I've done that through the work of my son on the cross, then you will be forgiven. You don't have to keep beating yourself up. You don't have to live in that shame. You will be made alive. Salvation will be yours forever. In Exodus chapter 34 verse 6, the Lord says it this way, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's fundamental nature is to be merciful, gracious, and forgive sin. And this is where real renewal can happen in your life. So, this morning, as we close and head back into a time of worship, if you have not confessed your sin, If you have not come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I need your blood, your sacrifice, the penalty that you took to cover over my sin, because I am that man, I am that woman, I have rebelled against the ways of the Lord, I know it in my heart and I've never really dealt with it, then as we pray, I pray that you would respond That you would pray with me, and I'll lead us in a prayer of confession and receive Christ. And if you have Christ in you, which I I think probably most of you would say that's your reality this morning, but you've gone your own way, then recognize. are, Are you willing to recognize I'm Him? I'm Him. I've done it. This is this is on me. I am the man, I am the woman. And instead of carrying that around in secret and stashing it away in your attic, I've walked with men and women who have done that for years, for decades. It crushes them. The weight of that sin crushes them. Why? Because the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to carry it. So we can release it to the Lord, we can release it at the foot of the cross. And we can grow and hear his hopeful voice. So I'm just going to invite you. I don't know how often you guys do this. At Troy, we've been doing this more and more. But if you have the guts and if you have the courage, whether you need to receive Christ or confess things to Christ, as we sing this song, just, just come. Just come and kneel somewhere at the front and just say, Lord, forgive me come and just lay down the weight of what you've been carrying. Start the series where it's meant to be started. Do the work that the Lord is calling his people, calling us to do today and confess what you've been holding on to. Yeah, that's a hard step to take. But when you leave this place, he will begin a process of healing and renewal that maybe you have not experienced in years, maybe decades, maybe never, but it will be great for your soul and you'll step into life. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, this story is so heavy and it's, it's like all the horrible colors of sin all wrapped up into a few events where there's jealousies and there's envies and there's covetousness and stealing and lying and murder and sin and it's gross and ugly. And yet, Father, when we look into our own lives, we know every single one of us, Father, wrestles with that sin. Shows up in different ways, different times, different circumstances, but we waffle because we are fickle people. So, Father, I pray for any here today who have not received the grace of Jesus through faith, that they would in these moments come And they would pray to you just in front of this stage, in front of these steps. They would pray to you, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I confess it all to you. I receive you as Lord and Savior. Give them the courage to move with their body the things that you're moving in their heart. And for all, Father, who follow Christ and yet have that sin that they've been holding on to and they've gone through... They've, they've gone through the ordinances, they've, they've taken communion, but they've not really taken the time to repent of it before you. I pray today would be their day so that they might leave this place on that process, on that healing journey of renewal, lighter, filled with the hope of Christ, filled with your words for your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.
1: Have you come to the end of yourself? It's born. The precious blood of this place and it is promised to us that he who began a good work is faithful to complete that work. So it's just our prayer that this is just the beginning for you and that the Lord is starting to do a work in your heart of transformation of repentance. Thank you guys so much for being here, for worshiping with us. We love you. We're praying for you and we'll see you guys next week. Jehovah, He sees your battles. Jehovah, He sees battles. 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 assurance, Jesus is mine, he's been my fourth man in the fire, time after time, born of his spirit, washed in His. the f